Okay, we're back in Mark 13, which is one of the most intriguing chapters in the Bible because it piques our interest about the future. Good. Although it is eschatological and somewhat apocalyptic, its major thrust is exhortative. As one commentator wrote, the main purpose of the discourse is not to satisfy curiosity about the future, but to give practical, ethical teaching. He, meaning Jesus, is preparing his disciples and beyond that the church to live and witness in a hostile world. In this passage, Jesus predicts the fall of Jerusalem, which occurred in 70 A.D., and it foreshadows events that will also occur at the end of the church age. Mark's audience is Roman or Gentile, but there would have been Jewish Christians living at that time as well who would have been in the church at Rome. And the exhortations we find here which are many, would have applied to their day, especially under the persecution of Nero, who was in power at this time and in the early 60s began to um, persecute Christians. They also uh, apply to every generation of the church moving forward to the tribulation period and the return of Christ to reign over the world. Now, this passage is also one of the most controversial in all the Bible, and there are mountains of exposition concerning it. There are wide variations of interpretation and application. Christian expositors do not agree about its fulfillment. We, of course, believe the Bible teaches the coming of a time of great distress that's unprecedented in the world, which precedes the coming of the Lord Jesus in glory. We believe the church will be raptured before that time, and I believe that when you put all the eschatological information we have in the Bible, uh, you put that together, I think this best explains everything that God reveals in his word. But in this passage, Jesus makes this astounding prediction that Israel's beloved temple is going to be totally demolished. Obviously, his disciples are concerned about that, and they ask him, when is this going to happen, and what will be the sign or the indication, uh, the fulfillment of it? Uh, The temple was destroyed, as well as the city of Jerusalem, because of God's unbelieving people. But it also stressed the truth that the old old way, the old order, was replaced by the new in the coming of Christ. There was no more need for a temple in which to worship, endless sacrifices to cover sin, or priests to offer them. Jesus fulfilled all of these shadows in his death and resurrection. And so now we have his second coming to look forward to. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning as we look to this passage of Scripture, you'll give us your wisdom and help us, Lord, to pay most attention to the exhortations that you give to your people who are living, even today, in a hostile world. And as we look forward to your coming, help us to uh, proclaim your word and to live for you until that happens. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, we're first of all going to take a look at these first four verses where Jesus predicts uh, the destruction of the temple that existed in his day. And in verses 1 and 2, we have a transitional uh, passage here. It closes out the ministry of Jesus in the temple as he leaves it and he goes out of the, out of the city for the last time. And it also inter- introduces what he has to say about the future of the temple. So uh, he went out of the temple, and as uh, he goes out there, one of the disciples, probably Peter, sees the construction of the uh, temple and all the wonderful stones and features of the temple, and he's amazed by it, and he just calls attention to it here. You know, see the great manner and wonder uh, of this building and these stones that are being put together. Now, Herod the Great was actually extending the temple that was constructed way back uh, in the, uh, the, the return of the exiles from Babylon. And this structure was indeed amazing. Uh, And we're going to take a look at that in just a moment. But first of all, let's be thinking here about uh, uh, what Jesus has accomplished up to this point in his return for the week of Passover. He's been confronted by these Jewish religious leaders who are hypocritical worshipers of God. They took pride in their temple, their knowledge of legal tradition, and they coveted their influence over the people. Jesus called them blind leaders of the blind, and in Matthew chapter 23, he condemned them for their hypocrisy. They've been trying to put him in a bad light by bringing uh, questions to him that they thought would catch him in his words. They failed in doing that. Jesus has emerged as the clear winner of the contest, so to speak. And now he's leaving the temple area in the city of Jerusalem, especially the temple, for the last time. Now Matthew records the sentiment of Jesus uh, from the city, and I want you just to flip over to Matthew 23, and let me read this to you. And this is likely occurring as they leave the city, they begin to go up the side of Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is speaking to the city. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are, pre- are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. That's the the temple, the house of the Lord. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there's that idea of this fulfillment, even as Jesus is leaving the precincts of the temple and going up to the Mount of Olives. Matthew, or excuse me, this is very similar Uh, to Ezekiel chapter 11, where the glory of the Lord departed from the old temple uh, in indication of its impending doom. And we see this in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 21. But as for those whose hearts follow desire for their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. 
So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. He's leaving the temple. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. And what mountain is on the east side of the city? It is Mount of Olives, the place where Jesus now goes, again rejecting uh, the temple, what it stands for, and the people. And uh, chapter 12 goes on to say, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, which has eyes to see but does not see, and ears to hear but does not hear, for they are a rebellious house. And Jesus repeated that to uh, the scribes and the Pharisees numerous times during his ministry. So there seems to be a connection between the Lord's Old Testament removal from the temple and its destruction, and now Jesus' removal and its impending doom. So they go out of the city, they go up the Mount of Olives, which is on the east side, and uh, one of the disciples makes this comment about the temple. And indeed, in Herod's day, it was being constructed. It wasn't yet finished. Wouldn't be wouldn't be finished till sixty four A.D. And uh, if if you were able to be there, you would find out that the temple area covered one sixth of the whole city. Its area was one and a half million square feet. It was huge. We're told that some of the foundation stones upon which it rested were uh, 37 feet long, uh, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. They were monstrous, uh, weighing four to 400 to 600 tons. And one rabbi recorded, it used to be said, he who has not seen the temple in its full splendor has never seen a beautiful building. And it was one of the wonders of the uh, ancient Roman world. So indeed, it was something magnificent, and they were very proud of it, and to think of it being destroyed was almost unimaginable. But Jesus responds to this, uh, this awe, if you will, of his disciples by saying something uh, that was uh, probably not easy for them to take. He said to them, do you see these great buildings? This wonderful structure, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And I'm sure they had questions rolling around in their head because uh, that didn't seem like a too great prospect to them. And the Jewish historian Josephus, who actually lived during the siege of Jerusalem, recorded how the temple was just raised. All those stones on it were, were pushed off. It was burned to the ground, and then they just, uh, they just raised it to the ground. So this was fulfilled uh, a few decades later. All that's left there today is just a few of those foundation stones and the wailing wall that you hear about, that wasn't part of the original uh, construction of Herod's temple. So nothing is left of it even today. Now, the disciples, obviously curious about this, come to Jesus. They've come to the, uh, the peak of the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the city. It would give you a grand view of the city 
as well as the temple, which rose up to the highest peak of the city. And it says they, they gathered opposite or over against the temple, is what the, uh, the Greek means. And these four disciples that we're familiar with come to him and they ask him privately. They've, they've left that uh, uh, vicinity and now they want to find out exactly what Jesus meant. So they say, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? <clears throat> Matthew adds, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So that kind of pushes it out a little bit farther than the fulfillment in 70 AD. And what Jesus describes now are events and circumstances leading up to the temple's destruction and really kind of foreshadowing uh, a, a future return. And the first part of his answer is exhortation. He's telling his disciples what to expect in the interim leading up to this destruction. And really, uh, they parallel the times in which the church uh, will, will be uh, moving forward. So let's take a look here at Jesus' warnings about what his disciples should expect in verses 5 through 13. And as we go through here, you'll note he says that these things do not indicate the end yet. So let's take a look at what he has to say. First of all, there's a general warning about the character of the time. This would apply to the time preceding the destruction of that temple. And really, I think we could say it could, uh, it could refer to a uh, time moving even beyond that. So Jesus answered them in verse 5, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. So the first warning is for his disciples to take heed not to be deceived by false Christ. Now that verb, take heed, is a note of awareness, a warning, alertness. It's repeated through the passage here. And we have to remember now Jesus is going to die shortly. He's going to be raised up from the dead. But many people will not believe that truth. Lots of people won't see it. Many will and testify of it. But because he did not establish an earthly kingdom at that time, others might come and claim to be the one who will establish that kingdom. So he warns, be uh, uh, careful, take heed, for many will come in my name saying, I am he and will deceive many. Now you'll note, that uh, the word he's in italics there, which means it's not in the text, so it means I am. And Jesus was the great I am, God in flesh. Now, we know that in this interim period leading up to the destruction of the temple, there were people who came and professed to be a king. Now, we don't really have any evidence that they were actually saying, I am the Messiah, but if you come and say, I am a prophet of God, and this is what's going to happen, or you say, I'm coming as a king who's going to establish a new rule, you are making messianic 
claims, even though you might not have said, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. And uh, again, Josephus, that historian, Jewish historian, named several men who made claims of prophetic or regal nature in that time period leading up to the Jewish wars in 66 to 70 AD. Now again, none of them actually made this statement or we don't have a record of it, but they did make claims of uh, being a king. Uh, Much later in the beginning of the first century, a man named Bar Chokba claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, literally. So this has been the case, really, even up to our day. And the Lord's disciples of any age need to be wary of those who make these kind of bold claims. Even in our generation, uh, there have been false messiahs, such as Charles Manson and Jim Jones and David Koresh and Sun Myung Moon. And I read this week that there's some investigation going on in Kenya where 400, over 400 bodies have been discovered in a what they believe is a, uh, a, a, a cult about the end times and the leader telling everybody, uh, kill yourself by starving yourself to death. So I don't know how that's going to turn out, but we see this kind of thing is going on even in our day. So there are religious movements and organizations that claim to be Christian. They deceive many people, and we always have to be on our guard. Then Jesus goes on to say in verses 7 and 8, not to be troubled by national or natural disturbances. And there certainly are plenty of those. He says in verse 7, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. So these are national and international disturbances, some of which surely occurred in that time period leading up to 70 AD. Many of the zealous Jews were involved in insurrections with Rome because they wanted Israel to be independent. Uh, That really led to the demise of the city. There would have been natural calamities during that time as well, perhaps scarier than our time, because you, you had no way of predicting them, and you really didn't have the resources to Uh, rescue people and help them recover from such situations. And he goes on to say, well, uh, there's going to be nations rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be earthquakes in various places. We've heard about many of these, even our own country. And there will be famines and troubles. And this is all leading up and, and reminding us that the Lord is coming back and um, uh, it's going to happen. Again, in our lifetime, we've experienced, uh, well, not all of us, but some of us, World War II, the Korean and Vietnam conflicts, the Cold War, the War on Terror, national rebellions and uprising. We hear about this all the time. And Jesus says, okay, don't worry about these kind of things. They don't indicate the end any more than they did in the first century, but they tell us the end is coming. These are the beginnings of the sorrows or the birth pangs 
For the disciples of Jesus' time, they were indications of something about to happen, but had not yet arrived, and uh, it may be a while before they do. For us, uh, these are calamities that will heighten and intensify until the final uh, conflagration. Then Jesus brings us to a little bit more personal application in verse 9 through 11. He says, but watch out for yourselves. So that exhortation is even more personal. You need to be careful because you are going to be in danger. Now, except for verse 10, uh, these sayings are found in other contexts in the Gospels. Mark adds them here likely as more exhortations about the antagonism his disciples are going to face leading up to the temple's destruction and beyond. Because in those other contexts, uh, it, it applies to all of his disciples. And he goes on to say here, You watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you'll be beaten in the synagogues. So there's going to be Jewish persecution. You need to be expecting persecution. And uh, we know that some of them will be arrested. They'll be delivered up to the council there in Jerusalem, same one that, that ordered Christ's death. Peter and John appeared before that council. Uh, this would have been before 70 AD. Uh, later on, Paul records that he was beaten five times. Now, these local authorities had the, the, uh, the authority to do that, to, to beat you uh, 40 times, less one in case they miscounted. So five times, Paul received 39 stripes for his witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> he goes on to say, you'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake. That would be the Roman authorities. And note again, it's for his sake, not because you've broken the law, not because you're an insurrectionist, but because you're, you're uh, preaching the word, you're living for the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's allowing these things to happen so you can become, come before the highest officials to be a testimony to them. And we know that happened with the Apostle Paul, don't we? He went before Festus, Felix, Agrippa, and even Caesar himself, the, the highest official of the Roman world at that time. And it was all uh, to give a testimony. And Paul did that in every situation. He tried to reach these people for Christ. God allows that sometimes so that people in high places can hear the truth of his word. It's part of persecution working out to build his kingdom. And even in these situations, what does the Lord say? Verse 11, well, when they arrest you, deliver you up, don't worry what to say. Don't think about it. Don't perseverate. Because when you stand before that group of people, the Lord himself through the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. He'll fill you and he'll, he'll give you the words to say to them that will be a clear testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say and show us that the depth of disloyalty by those who persecute us is, uh, is pretty serious. It's going to come right down to the family unit. A brother will betray brother to death. 
A father is child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. There's, there's a pretty serious indication, and this has happened historically. To save your own life, you'll give somebody else up. Or to be an informer, you'll give other people up. We've seen that happen historically, and evidently it happened at that time as well. Out of fear of the synagogue, people don't want to uh, get in trouble, so they'll give over uh, somebody else and maybe testify against them. So that kind of thing is going on, and it continues to go on. Furthermore, Jesus says in verse 13, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus forewarned us that people hated him and put him to death. And uh, the disciples should understand that if they hated him who is the master, they will hate them who are the followers, the disciples. Paul reminded Timothy that if you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Now in America... We've been largely protected from this because of our legal system. It's in our Constitution. But that's starting to erode a little bit, isn't it? We're seeing less and less tolerance of biblical beliefs and those who hold to them. And that might increase. That might get worse over time. It definitely was present in that previous generation. It moves forward into a, a nation even like our own. Now, what else is going to characterize this time? Well, in verse 10, this doesn't seem to fit that well, but the Lord says, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. So here we have the proclamation of the gospel. We expect persecution, but we also proclaim the gospel. Now, was the gospel proclaimed to all nations by 70 AD? Some say no, but... I think it probably was. At least the Roman Empire, and even beyond that, I would say it's been done in our generation. We could go to every nation of the world and we could find pockets of believers. So this is something that I think uh, some might disagree, but in the first century, uh, the the largely populated world uh, did hear the gospel. Look at all the places that that the disciples went. We believe Thomas went to India, and Peter and Paul went to Rome, and they went farther west, probably to Spain. They went into Africa. So in the world of that day, uh, the gospel was being spread. This doesn't mean that every single person had to hear it, or every, uh, every county, so to speak, but broadly speaking, the gospel did go out. The book of Revelation tells us that even during the tribulation period of unprecedented persecution, the Lord's going to ordain certain people to preach the gospel. He's going to protect them to that end. And the gospel will be preached even when the Antichrist is trying to shut it down. So this conveys to us that as we face hatred and persecution in a hostile world, we're still to boldly proclaim the gospel about Jesus Christ, who he is, why he came into the world. So we can expect persecution, and during that persecution, we are to proclaim the word. One last thing here is mentioned in verse 13. 
<coughs> verse, uh, the, the end of the verse. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, that reference to the end does not mean the end of the age or the end of time. It, it's talking about the end of your life. It's, it's a personal thing. The one who endures to the end, he's the one who's going to be fully and finally saved. So the third thing is perseverance. Persecution, proclamation, perseverance. And of course, enduring to the end is, uh, is standing for the Lord Jesus Christ, walking with him, trusting in him, persevering through difficulties and trials all the way to the end of your life or until the Lord comes. Some would not do so. Judas Iscariot was one of them. But that's part of the Christian faith. That's one of the things that, that shows that we are faithful and we're trusting him as we're persevering through the trials of life until we die or until he comes. So how we, we, we respond to the times in which we live, not fearing what's going on in the world, not worried about upheavals and calamities and persecution. These are indications of our persevering spirit and our relationship with the Lord. Now, we come to the last section we're going to deal with this morning. And that's the sign that triggers the end or the fulfillment, which would apply to 70 AD and very likely a future time that we haven't arrived at. So the sign that triggers the end is called, in verse 14, the abomination of desolation. What in the world is that? And again, there's all kinds of interpretations, uh, but there are some things that we can definitely draw from it. This phrase is associated with Daniel's prophecies. An abomination is anything that's repugnant or abhorrent to God. Some sins in the Bible are tagged as abominations, one of them being idolatry. Uh, one commentator said it alludes to shameful acts associated with a place of sacrifice or idolatry, and it results in the pollution or desecration of the place in which that uh, sacrifice is offered. Now, one historical fulfillment of this, recorded by Daniel, occurred in 167 B.C., and this was during the days of the Maccabees who were fighting against Rome and were told that a representative of Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the Jewish temple by offering on it swine's blood. And that's named as an um, abomination of desecration. Now, in some way, a similar desecration would have occurred before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, but we really can't identify what that was. Some have suggested a number of things. For instance, the activity of the zealots that led up to the Jewish wars, but that doesn't really uh, fit the context here. Others believe the effort of Caligula, one of the Roman emperors, uh, to place images in the temple 
or Pilate's attempt to place Roman standards in the city, or Titus' visit to the temple site. He's the one who destroyed the city and the temple. But Caligula and Pilate failed in their attempt, so they, that really can't apply to what, was ha- what that abomination would be. And Titus never really came until after the city was destroyed. There wasn't any more temple to come to and desecrate. So again, we really don't know what this would have referred to in the first century context, but whatever it must have been, it was to warn the people of Judea to get out as quickly as possible, as Jesus goes on to explain here. Uh, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, it doesn't say Jerusalem. It says Judea. So this was... Uh, a broader uh, way of looking at things than just the city of Jerusalem. Let him who's on the housetop not go down into the house nor enter to take anything out of the house. Let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. So wherever you're at, you need to run. Don't try to even pack anything to go with you. If you do, it's going to be too late. And then he goes on to say, Woe to those who are with the with child and those who are nursing babes. And pray your flight may not be in winter. He's showing the seriousness of the situation. If you're having some kind of a, uh, a physical issue like these mentioned, or it's wintertime, that's just going to make it worse for you. And although this in some way applied to that first destruction, I think it applies to the coming tribulation as well. We know from the writings of Josephus that the period of the Jewish wars and the siege of Jerusalem was just a horrible time for the nation. Uh, Thousands upon thousands were, were killed. But we look at the next few verses and it seems like we're going beyond something, uh, uh, beyond that desolation that occurred in 70 AD Because we're told in those days, there will be tribulation. There will be uh, a time that is of great persecution and danger. Such has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor never shall be. Now again, that was a horrible time in the history of Israel. I don't think it would have compared to the Holocaust. And it certainly won't compare to what Daniel called, or excuse me, Matthew calls the Great Tribulation and the descriptions that we find in the book of Revelation. So perhaps the Lord is projecting beyond this. This is a, uh, a foreshadowing of something that will be even worse for the Jewish people than what, occur, what occurred historically. And the Lord says, unless he had shortened those days in verse 20, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And again, we don't know how many elect there were in the city of Judah, or uh, Jerusalem, or in the region of Judea. Certainly there were some. And... uh, The siege of Jerusalem lasted five months, relatively short period of time. Many, many died during that time. And so the Lord perhaps reduced that time for the sake of the elect. And in the future, he will do the same thing. 
The worst part of the tribulation will be the last three and a half years. In comparison to the history of humanity, that's a very short time. And God will save his elect out of that period. Jesus, again, then warns to be on the lookout uh, for false Christs. Verse 22, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now, during that siege time of Jerusalem, uh, again, Josephus mentions a couple of people who rose up and, and claimed to be uh, a leader. Of course, that wasn't true. We do know this is going to happen in the future. Very clear from the book of Revelation that Antichrist will come on the scene. He will set himself up to be worshipped as God. The false prophet will perform all kinds of signs and wonders and he'll deceive the world so much so that even the elect might be tempted to believe him. But Jesus closes with that warning, verse 23, Again, take heed. You take heed because I've told you what to expect beforehand. So I think the major application here is these exhortations that he's given us. No matter what age we might be living in, they still hold true. So let's take a moment here and just uh, think about a few of these things. First of all, we're not to equate national, international, or natural events of the world as signs of the last times. Folks, we're in the last times. We've been in the last times uh, since the days of Christ, even really preceding that, the, the days of the Gentiles. Uh, so we don't worry when we hear about wars and rumors of wars. We don't worry when we, we see all these natural calamities that seem to be increasing some but what do they do they remind us that the time's near could be any day now these are initial warnings that the end is approaching and things are going to come to their consummation secondly remembering these three points about what to expect there's persecution We should not be surprised that we're going to face persecution and the world's hatred. We're living in post-Christian America, and we will be increasingly marginalized. We're seeing that before our very eyes. We're being persecuted to a small extent, but don't be surprised if that grows. And if you're truly living for Christ... The Bible says you're going to get persecuted sooner or later. You're going to be looked down on, vilified in some way. Expect it. And if you're not, well, maybe you're compromising. Thirdly, proclamation. Well, while we're on this earth, we're involved in the endeavor of preaching the gospel to all nations until he comes. So that means witnessing on a personal basis to folks that we know, to the unsaved, and supporting missionary endeavors all over the world. We're spreading the gospel, and we're still very free in our country to do that here and then sending people out. Fourthly, perseverance. We're to persevere in the faith 
until the end of our life unless Jesus comes first. That means we're faithful in our walk with him and as we face the daily temptations and persecutions and onslaughts of the world, we never quit, we never give up, we never surrender to the flesh, the world, or the devil. And we help each other in our walk. And finally, we're not looking for an antichrist. We're not looking for an abomination of desolation. We're not looking for signs and wonders or time schemes of Christ's return. We're looking for Jesus to come and take us home to glory. So let's be thankful that in the midst of life difficulties, that is the end game. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're again thankful today Uh, for the prophecies that you have given that have come true. And Lord, help us to look forward to the final consummation, the final event of things that still is in the future when you come again to rule and every knee bows to you. We do pray, Lord, you'll help us to be faithful witnesses. Help us, Lord, uh, to carry on even though we may face persecution And Lord, uh, help us to uh, proclaim the gospel and look forward to your coming. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.